and welcome to another episode of the APOG Podcast. I'm the show's host and creator, Morgan Bechtel. And today we'll be discussing the capital C change, also known as perimenopause and menopause. Nicknamed reverse puberty, second spring, and of course, the change, menopause is an inevitable occurrence for anyone who menstruates, but very few menstruating people actually know what's going on with their bodies during this important time. Today, we'll review the pathophysiology, common symptoms, diagnosis, and available treatment options. So listen close as we dive into the details of menopause. Menopause is defined as a series of biological and hormonal changes that leads to the permanent cessation of menses. Now, this is a diagnosis that's made retroactively, meaning that it can only be made after menses has ceased for 12 consecutive months without any other pathologic or physiologic cause. The median age of menopause in the United States is between 51 and 52 years of age, with early menopause being defined as anywhere between 40 and 45 years old. Any cessation of menses prior to 40 years old is coined primary ovarian insufficiency. And we'll talk more about this in our upcoming infertility episode. Now, factors that impact the age of menopause include things like a family history of early menopause or a FMR1 gene mutation. Again, that's the fragile X gene mutation. And that's often because those gene mutations are more associated with primary ovarian insufficiency and early menopause. Now, some studies have found that there are certain ethnic groups that may reach menopause sooner than others. However, there's definitely more research that needs to be done in order to understand these differences. There are certain risk factors for early menopause, and this includes things like smoking, uterine DES exposure, type 1 diabetes, a hysterectomy without oophorectomy, and even night shift work. Now that we've defined menopause and know some of the risk factors, let's talk a little bit about the pathophysiology behind it. Biological females are born with a set number of oocytes in their ovaries that deplete throughout their lifetime. At the time of menarche, which is, of course, the start of menses, about half of these oocytes have disintegrated. And throughout the reproductive years, each month, the ovaries will recruit a cohort of follicles, again, each containing one oocyte, and one oocyte will be released in ovulation while the rest of the follicles in the cohort will disintegrate in a process called atresia. For more details on this process, take a listen to the menstrual cycle episode from season one. Now, it's the number of oocytes that a person starts with and the rate at which they deplete their ovarian reserve that will determine the age of menopause. There are several hormones that play a key role leading up to and during menopause, and they are as follows. We have the anti-malarian hormone, also known as AMH, which is found both in males and females. In biological females, this is a biochemical marker of ovarian function. Higher AMH levels mean more eggs and a higher ovarian reserve. And lower AMH levels means fewer eggs and a lower ovarian reserve. Now, AMH levels naturally decline with age and eventually reach zero when menopause occurs. AMH is a level often used in infertility testing, but it's important to note that AMH cannot tell you about the quality of the eggs you have or predict the ability of getting pregnant. The next hormone we'll talk about is inhibin B. Now, this is a biochemical marker that's produced by growing follicles that are responsive to FSH, or follicle-stimulating hormone. As the follicle continues to grow and become dominant, inhibin B secretion declines. As the growing pool of antral follicles decreases during aging, the levels of inhibin B diminish. Next, we'll talk about follicle-stimulating hormone. 
Again, this is a hormone that's secreted by the pituitary gland, and this hormone causes some of the follicles in the ovaries to start maturing, leading to the production of a dominant follicle that's released during ovulation. Again, more details of FSH during the menstrual cycle in that menstrual cycle episode from season one. The last hormone we'll talk about is estradiol, often symbolized by E2. Now, estradiol is primarily made in the ovaries, and it's the most potent and abundant form of estrogen in the body. Other forms being estradiol, estrone, and estetrol. It is the drastic reduction of estrogen made by the ovaries that leads to many of the symptoms experienced during menopause. Now, a biological female's reproductive decline can be broken down into four stages. The reproductive years, perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause. The reproductive years starts with the first menstrual period and lasts until perimenopause begins, and this mainly consists of monthly menstrual cycles. Again, see our episode from season one on the menstrual cycle to learn more. In the late reproductive years, the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle begins to shorten, causing shorter cycles overall, and people trying to conceive during this time may struggle with infertility. Now, perimenopause is defined as the time in which a person will start to experience changes related to the onset of menopause, and that's approximately four years prior to the final menstrual period, or FMP. Now, this period is marked by menstrual irregularities, hormonal fluctuations, and hot flashes. And perimenopause is broken down into two stages. First, the early stage, which is when menstrual irregularities begin. Again, cycles either shorten, lengthen, or sometimes they even rotate between the two. Patients may also experience breast tenderness and pain during this time. During this stage, AMH and inhibin B are low, FSH is high, and estradiol is relatively normal. Late-stage perimenopause is marked by more striking menstrual irregularities, like skip cycles, amenorrheic periods, followed by shorter cycles or even very long periods of heavy bleeding. During this time, AMH and inhibin B are low, FSH continues to be high, but estradiol is low. It's during this time that vasomotor symptoms like hot flashes may begin. And again, those symptoms are due to this decline in estrogen. Hot flashes are often the hallmark symptoms of this transition period with up to 80% of females experiencing these symptoms. Sometimes new onset depression or even exacerbation of depression is also common in the menopausal transition period and tends to decrease in the postmenopausal period. Many women also describe as having a brain fog or forgetfulness during this time. Sometimes menstrual migraines may increase in frequency and intensity during this time as well. Again, menopause is diagnosed retroactively, 12 months following the final menstrual period. This is the time at which the ovarian reserve is completely or nearly completely depleted, and symptoms during this time are the same as in late perimenopause. Now, the postmenopausal period, like perimenopause, is broken down into two stages. The early stage is approximately two to six years following the final menstrual period. During this time, FSH continues to rise while estrogen levels remain low, and then eventually FSH stabilizes. AMH and inhibin B are low, and then eventually they go nearly to zero. Patients are likely to experience vasomotor symptoms during this time period as well. Now, a late-stage postmenopausal period is defined roughly as six years following the final menstrual period, and it's during this time that a patient may present with genitourinary syndrome of menopause, also called GSM, but it was previously called 
vulvovaginal atrophy or atrophic vaginitis. Now the decrease in estrogen during this time period leads to decreased blood flow to the vulvovaginal tissue, which results in increased pH of the vagina, thinning tissue, loss of rugae, which are the ridges of the vaginal wall, which help the vagina expand and therefore causes decreased elasticity. Symptoms of GSM include vaginal or vulvar irritation, itching, vaginal infections, painful sex, frequent UTIs, postcoital bleeding, and abnormal discharge. There are risks of long-term hypoestrogenemia, which include osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, cognitive impairment, and decreased collagen skin elasticity. Now that we've covered the pathophysiology and the symptoms of menopause, you may be thinking, how does one diagnose it? Typically, the diagnosis can be made clinically based on age and symptoms. If a patient has signs and symptoms of menopause, again, menstrual irregularities, vasomotor symptoms, things like that, then workup is often based on age. If a patient's less than 40, then they should have a complete evaluation for amenorrhea and primary ovarian insufficiency. This may include labs evaluating for pregnancy, like a beta HCG, hormone function, like FSH, LH, estradiol, progesterone, testosterone, as well as other physiological causes of menstrual irregularities, like ordering a TSH and free T4 for thyroid abnormalities, an A1C for hyperglycemia, and prolactin for hyperprolactinemia. Now, sometimes a transvaginal ultrasound may be done to evaluate for PCOS or uterine fibroids, which may cause menstrual irregularities. An important note in women who are suspected of having premature ovarian insufficiency, the measurement of serum FSH can be misleading for those who have intermittent ovarian function, as it can be in the normal range during the ovulatory cycles, but in the postmenopausal range when experiencing oligo or amenorrhea. If one suspects premature ovarian insufficiency, it's recommended measuring FSH on cycle day three in females with menstrual cycles, and for those with amenorrhea, the sample can be drawn on any random day. Now, for a patient age 40 to 45 who is experiencing signs and symptoms of menopause, we generally recommend having that workup for oligo or amenorrhea to rule out other possibilities of causes. Again, that's the TSH, prolactin, beta-HCG, but hormone levels like FSH aren't always drawn as they can be misleading. If there's no other causes found, then a patient's symptom is likely early menopause. For patients 45 and above, no further workup is needed as they're most likely in menopausal transition. FSH drawn during this time can be misleading, so it's generally not recommended routinely. Of course, you should work up the patient for other endocrine disorders if they present with signs and symptoms. A patient presenting with heavy bleeding and menopausal transition should have a full workup for abnormal uterine bleeding in order to rule out any structural or malignant causes. And of course, you want to counsel the patient on what to expect and offer treatment. Now, some special considerations include patients with irregular cycles or with PCOS, they may have a harder time recognizing when they're in that perimenopausal period. So oftentimes we use symptoms and biochemical data to help assess where they are in this transition. Patients who are on hormonal contraceptives can mask the symptoms of menopause. If we're interested in measuring FSH to see where a patient is in their menopausal transition period, we would have them discontinue the birth control for four weeks and measure the FSH then. If it's elevated, then the patient's likely in perimenopause. And typically, hormonal contraceptives are stopped around 50 to 51 years of age. Next, we'll discuss the treatment options available to manage the symptoms of menopause. The most common treatment involves M. HT, or menopausal hormone therapy, which consists of supplemental estrogen and progesterone. Which makes sense. If the symptoms of menopause are results of decreased estrogen, then supplementing it should treat the symptoms. 
However, this treatment, like any medication, is not without risk. Many women have heard that hormone replacement is associated with increased risk of breast cancer and stroke. What they're referring to is a 15-year study published in 2002 by the Women's Health Initiative that evaluated strategies for preventing heart disease, breast and colorectal cancer, and osteoporosis in postmenopausal women. Now, in the past, hormone therapy was often prescribed for prevention of coronary heart disease and osteoporosis based upon some data that demonstrated a protective effect of estrogen on the heart and bone. However, data from this WHI or Women's Health Initiative study showed a number of adverse outcomes, including excessive risk of coronary heart disease, venous thromboembolism, meaning blood clot and stroke, and breast cancer. It's for this reason that many patients may be hesitant to try hormonal therapy for symptom improvement. An important distinction I make when talking to my patients about the WHI study is that the average age of the women studied were around 60 years old, the mean age being 63 and that more recent studies have shown that the risk of coronary vascular disease and stroke is not increased in younger postmenopausal women, and that's defined as being 50 to 59. And in fact, hormone replacement may be productive. Benefits of MHD include a reduction in vasomotor symptoms, decreased risk of fractures, and decreased rates of type 2 diabetes. Of course, baseline risk factors have to be taken into account before starting MHT, including smoking history, family history of breast cancer, and stroke risk. In order to mitigate the risk of endometrial cancer, estrogen therapy is often given in combination with progesterone in patients who still have a uterus. Now let's talk a little bit about the estrogen and progesterone supplements. Estrogen supplementation is available in many different routes, including oral, transdermal, intramuscular, as well as topical gels, and even vaginal rings. Of those routes, transdermal and oral are the most common. And transdermal is preferred if the risk of venous thromboembolism, stroke, gallbladder disease, or hypertriglyceridemia is high. A standard dose is one milligram a day by mouth or 0.05 milligrams a day transvaginally or transdermally with the goal of starting at the lowest dose and titrating up as needed. Now, vaginal estrogen therapy is the mainstay of treatment for genitourinary symptoms as it thickens epithelium, decreases dyspareunia, increases secretions, prevents UTIs, and restores vaginal pH. The standard dose for vaginal estrogen is a 10 microgram tablet that's inserted vaginally once daily for two weeks, then twice weekly as maintenance dosing. As mentioned before, creams and ring preparations are also available. Now, opposing progesterone generally is not indicated for topical estrogens due to low levels of systemic absorption and no demonstrable impact on the endometrium. As mentioned, progestins are used concurrently with estrogen therapy for anyone with an intact uterus in order to protect against endometrial malignancy. If a patient has had a hysterectomy, additional progestin is not needed as it increases other risks and offers no benefit. Recommended dosing includes the cyclic use of micronized progesterone, about 200 milligrams a day, for 12 continuous days a month. It is recommended that the patient takes progestin at night as its metabolites can cause somnolence. Side effects of cyclic progesterone include withdrawal bleeding, mood symptoms, and bloating. Continued oral progesterone can be used at 100 milligrams, but cyclic dosing is associated with a reduction in the risk of coronary heart disease and breast cancer. 
For females who are unable to tolerate cyclic or continuous oral progesterone, alternatives include vaginal progesterone and the levonorgestrel IUD. If a patient cannot tolerate any progesterone but needs endometrial protection, they can use a conjugated estrogen based doxifene therapy, which basedoxifene is a CIRM therapy. Now, generally, hormone replacement is used continuously for three to five years before a patient is titrated off the medications as tolerated. The longer the patient is on hormone replacement, the greater the risk of become. So we want to be on it for the shortest amount of time at the lowest dose. Now, custom compound preparations, often referred to as bioidentical hormones, are largely unregulated and their safety profiles are unknown and therefore not really recommended. To summarize, menopausal symptoms include a mix of vasomotor symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats, as well as genitourinary symptoms like vaginal irritation and dryness. These symptoms are often undertreated and can significantly impact a person's quality of life. In younger peri- and postmenopausal women, meaning 50 to 59 years old, the risks of hormone replacement are extremely low and are often outweighed by the benefits. Assessing a patient's risk for coronary vascular disease and breast cancer risk prior to initiating therapy is important. Always use progesterone therapy along with oral estrogen therapy if a patient has an intact uterus. Again, we want to start at lower doses and titrate up based on symptom relief and side effects. And lastly, we generally continue hormone replacement for three to five years and titrate the patient off the medications as tolerated. The longer the patient's on hormone therapy, the greater the risk become. Well, that wraps it up for me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on menopause. Tune in next time where I'll be sitting down with longtime genetic counselor, Patty Winners, to discuss the importance of prenatal genetic testing and her work in the field. As always, you can find the resources for this episode in the show notes, as well as links to our episodes on APOG's website, www.paobgyn.org. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or anywhere podcasts are found. You can also follow APOG on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at APAOG to stay up to date on all the cool things we're up to. And lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a difference in our visibility and it would mean the world to me. Well, that's it. That is the end of my pandering. Till next time, stay safe, tell someone you love them, and bring a little kindness into the world. Goodbye.